The uh, reading this morning is taken from Luke 22, 6. So, um, Luke 22, mainly, and a bit of 23. There you go. Um, verse 66 reads, At daybreak, the council of the elders of the church, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated on the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. And then they said, Why do you need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment to, of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. And then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, If no basis for a charge, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been waiting for him. For what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some sort of sign. He plied with him um, with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found him no grounds for the death penalty. And therefore I will have to punish him and then he will be released. But loud shouts uh, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they had asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, most of us love a good courtroom drama. Um, I don't know what your favorite is. It might be 12 Angry Men, Erin Brockovich, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, The Verdicts, A Few Good Men, 
Murder in the First, uh, the JFK conspiracy kind of thriller. Um, you know, I don't know which ones uh, you like. I love them. I am always kind of fascinated by them. There's even uh, one of the, the earliest written ones was that Shakespeare himself did one, uh, The Merchant of Venice, uh, where you've got uh, uh, the moneylender Shylock who wants his pound of flesh and uh, Portia acts as a sort of uh, defence lawyer, acting defence lawyer, um, and says eventually she finds the key loophole, which is you can have your pound of flesh, but you're not allowed to draw any blood. Uh, sorry if you're doing GCSE and that's a spoiler, but um, uh, that's what happens. And uh, the thing that always riles me about courtroom dramas, because you know, the whole system is based upon you know, swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so somebody comes along and they ask the, you know, the, somebody in the dock or a witness uh, or the accused, or whatever it is, and they ask them a question and the answer is not a simple answer. It's not a yes or no answer. And so they start elaborating on something and justifying and giving a reason. And they say, all we want to do is say yes or no. Just give a yes or no answer. And you know that if they say yes or no, they're absolutely stuffed because that's not, that's, it's a way more complicated thing. I get so angry about it and I get kind of embroiled in the whole thing of why don't you play the system? It says the whole truth, not just yes or no. Anyway, so um, we've got two trials today. Uh, for us to enjoy. We've got the religious trial of Jesus uh, in front of the religious leaders and we've got the civil trial in front of the kind of Roman ruling uh, forces uh, in Luke chapter 23. So we're going to start with the religious trial in, at the end of chapter 22 and the key issue really here is is Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah of God? Is he the Christ? Is he the chosen one? Is he uh, this incredible uh, claim that he makes? And they're sure that his claims are false and therefore they see him as being blasphemous uh, and therefore des deserving of the death penalty as according to uh, Old Testament, Leviticus 24, etc. So they say, if you are the Messiah, then tell us. But Jesus knows that their hearts are, are, are a long way from even hearing what he's got to say on the issue. Um, he knows that they are full of unbelief. He says, if I tell you, you will still will not believe. And he also knows that they are intellectually completely dishonest on this because if he asks them a question, they won't answer him. And uh, so a little bit earlier on, you remember when he, ch he's challenged in the temple courts and uh, they say, he says, by what authority do you do these things? And he turns it back to them and he says, well, what about John? John's baptism, was, whose authority was that? Was he a man of God or was he, was he not? And uh, so they reason and say, well, I probably he was a man of God, but if we say that, then that doesn't really work. So he realizes that they won't follow reason in this situation. They already have rejected the whole idea uh, of the evidence uh, for who Jesus is. You know, John 12, 37, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. So there's very little point for him to preach at them, to debate with them, and they've already made the mind up. They've got closed minds, they've got closed hearts uh, to it. But what he does say, which is still quite provocative, is that from now on, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of mighty God, of the mighty God. And uh, there's two things here. First is this phrase, the Son of Man, is not just a throwaway line, but it's a direct uh, reference back into Daniel where the, the Messiah, this, this chosen one of God, would come like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. So this son of man phrase has key, key links back to this claim of God's authority uh, in it all. 
And his second phrase, which is he'll sit at the God's right hand, again is a, is a re- reference back to this messianic Psalm 110 uh, where it talks about him sitting at the right hand of God, which basically says you know, he has the same authority and uh, the same honor that God has uh, and so continues to provoke them with this claim uh, of divinity. Although he also sees through the suffering he's about to endure and realizes that even though the suffering he's going through, he will be sitting at the right hand of God. So for him, it's also a place of faith as well. But he still claims that. So they say to him, verse 70, are you then the son of God? And he says, you say that I am. Um, And so they say, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. And uh, it's used later as testimony with Pilate in John's account in chapter 19, verse seven. You know, literally whatever you say will be taken down and used as evidence against you. However, they're all under Roman rule, and as far as Rome goes, they're not really that fussed about somebody breaking some religious laws of Judaism. They, they need some criminal charges. They need some civil charges uh, that potentially deserve death here. Uh, and so they take him off to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they begin to accuse him in a different way. So now they're bringing the civil charges against Jesus that they think will stack up uh, in the, the eyes of the Romans. So. The accusation is that he's subverting the nation, that he's opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, that he claims to be this Messiah, which uh, by the way, Romans, if you don't know what that is, it means king. (laughs) It means he's like Caesar over everything. And he's stirring up the people all over Judea. Hopefully these charges will stick. And uh, so let's take Pontius Pilate first of all and just start with him because he is the Roman governor of, of the area. He's been doing it, for, he's, he has 10 years in office from 26 to 36 AD and apparently he had a fairly typical Roman sense of fairness uh, in things um, because they kept the peace of Rome uh, in all that they do. However, he didn't like the Jews. He really hated the Jews. He struggled with them. Um, and if you read earlier in, uh, in Luke's gospel, you'll find out he, he caused all sorts of problems at the temple. He mixed the blood of the Galatians with their sacrifices. He caused some riots. And anyway, it didn't go well uh, between them. However, because they've come with these accusations about Jesus, he has to take them seriously. Um, so he questions Jesus. And he, he's impressed by him. He's impressed by self-control. He's impressed by his character, and he really doesn't see him as a politically harmful character at all. And so he's convinced by his innocence. Three times, I find no basis for charges against him. Verse 14, I've examined in your presence, no basis for charges against him. He certainly doesn't deserve death. Verse 22, what crime has he committed? I find no grounds for the death penalty. So on one hand, he wants to avoid sentencing Jesus for his conscience. But on the other hand, he wants to placate the Jews because of the chaos that they're causing. And so we see him wriggling indecisively uh, through this whole kind of little uh, scenario. And there are four ways, really, that he tries to to get out of it. First of all, he tries to pass the buck. So he realizes that Jesus started in Galilee. Oh, fantastic. That's Herod's area. That's his constituency. And he happens to be in town. So I'll send him to Herod and he can deal with it. I don't need to get involved. Let's, let's pass the buck to Herod. But he says, well, I can't find anything wrong with him. And he just sends him back and says, you, it's your problem. You solve it. So uh, carry on. And no wonder they became friends. Uh, secondly, he says, well, he tries this half measure approach, um, which is what I'll do is I'll punish Jesus um, because that will hopefully keep the Jews happy. 
But um, I will then release him because, because of his innocence and that, that keeps my conscience happy. Um, and I mean, the whipping itself, you know, the flogging itself would have been brutal. You know, hopefully he's thinking the Jews will be happy with that. You know, this is a, a guy with his back getting lacerated. Horrendous uh, kind of thing even on itself. But it's still a pretty weak decision on Pilate's part because if Jesus is innocent, you shouldn't get any punishment, okay? But he's just trying to find a way around. And the Jews are having none of that. They, they want the death penalty. So anyway, he tries another one. He tries the right thing this time, but for the wrong reason. So it, the right thing is to release Jesus because he's innocent, but he won't make the decision. So he says, what I'll do is, I've just remembered there's this great custom we have on Passover where we can release someone uh, on the festival uh, back from prison. So um, he offers them some options there and hopefully this time the people will make the right decision and the just decision, but of course they don't. They want Barabbas released. And Barabbas really has killed people. He really has called, caused an uprising in the city. He's caused most of these civil problems that they're accusing Jesus of and they're more than happy to have him released. So really the civil issues are not the issues for them uh, at all. So he's really stuck now um, is Pilate and so this fourth one he tries if you read in Matthew's account is he goes in front of the people and he washes his hands and he says this has got nothing to do with me it's all on you and uh, which obviously isn't true he's just uh, fudged his way through the whole thing and in fact his uh, you know in the Christian creed that's recited down through the centuries it actually states that uh, Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate so his name is there forevermore to be then involved and it's very easy for us to judge uh, Pilate um, and overlook perhaps our own uh, devious behavior uh, when it comes to challenging things. You know, the, the, the cost that we have to pay sometimes for being a Christian, the difficult decisions that we have to make and the wholehearted commitment that that requires. So it may be that there are decisions where we really, there are decisions we need to take and we need to make, but we, we put them off, you know, or we, try, we hope someone else will make that decision on our behalf. Um, it can be at work, it can be at home, it can be in all sorts of situations. We pass the buck. Or it can be that we opt for the half-hearted compromise because it suits us or it makes life more comfortable for us or it avoids some hassle uh, in our lives. Uh, or perhaps we look to honour Jesus but for the wrong reason. You know, we, we see him as a, as, a, as a good teacher but is he really Lord uh, in our lives? Is he really Lord of all of those areas? Or perhaps it's those public statements we make. You know, we come on a Sunday, we sing the songs, we make these great public affirmations, but actually, do we really believe it uh, inside uh, and affirm our loyalty outside, but is it real? And so there's lots of ways in which we can, uh, we can be similar. But a pilot eventually concedes to the people, it's all about their shouts prevailing, it's all about their demands being granted, and he surrenders Jesus to their will. Uh, through it all, the pressure of culture, the pressure of people around us, the pressure of what the world says and what the world wants. And so he compromises, he has no backbone uh, at all. And uh, again, a challenge to ourselves. So what's really going on? That's the question I was asking. What, what is it that was really making them so vehement, as it were, against Jesus through all of this? And I think the key word is back in verse two. And it's this word subversion. It's, it says that he was subverting our nation and claiming to be a king. Uh, subversion is one of these words that 
we, you sort of know what it means, but it's not a word you use every day. It's the sort of thing that's likely to appear a crossword clue or something. And, um, but I think it's probably something that we do need to really understand uh, in our lives. And there's a couple of meanings to it. One meaning is to, to overthrow a kingdom or to plot the downfall of a nation. Uh, or another meaning is to push something back down into its proper place, where it's meant to be. And with Jesus, the downfall was not of the nation. Okay? He wasn't plotting the downfall of the nation, but he was, he was um, trying to overthrow the kingdom of darkness okay? that affected culture, that affected the world or the way the world thinks and lives, if you like. He was trying to push back down the things that should really be under God and under Jesus' feet and get a proper perspective on certain aspects of the world. Putting things, not pushing them down and forcing them down and trying to keep them there in a kind of, uh, kind of pressured way, but in putting them in their right place, in their proper place where they were originally designed to be. Now the early, early Christians were subversive in how they lived because they refused to honour Caesar as the Lord of Lords. Okay? Instead, Jesus was their Lord of Lords and that got them into a lot of bother. But at the same time, while they were subversive in how they lived, they were also submissive in how they lived. In fact, sometimes living submissively is a subversive way of living. Um, so they are connected. But they lived submissively to the governing bodies. So they, you know, as the New Testament tells us, we're to respect authority. We're to be respectful to our leaders. We're to be good citizens uh, in all that we do. But they didn't allow the government to have ultimate authority over them. Okay, God has given us authority. He's given authority to the rulers and uh, government is a good gift from God that, that works in our society, but only when it's submitted to God and that's when it works properly, when people understand it's delegated authority and that was Jesus' thing. He was, he was saying, Caesar's Caesar, he's, you know, but he's, he's not the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's, he has to submit to one greater than him. So he's trying to subvert, or he is subverting Caesar's authority to its rightful place under God. And, uh, and the Christians were persecuted for that because if Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't Lord. Uh, recently there was a Christian uh, guy, a uh, Chris, Chinese Christian activist, who, a uh, 67-year-old guy who was jailed for seven years, uh, literally for subversion. That was his, his charge against him. Subversion, damaging national security, and harming social stability. And uh, the, the way he apparently did that was he was leading an underground organization that masqueraded as a church because it wasn't part of the state church uh, in China. And he was also uh, dedicated to identifying and drawing attention to uh, accusations of government abuses, uh, such as uh, the removal of hundreds of crosses from churches. Uh, such as the imprisonment of hundreds of Christians and also the, the defending lawyers that were defending them. And one commentator makes this point, says, for Christians who respond to Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the Communist Party in China cannot get their heads around that because they're atheist. So in their eyes, you're standing up and saying the state is doing things wrong and in their eyes, the only reason you could possibly be doing it is because of foreign influence. Okay, and so therefore they see that as subversion. They see that as bringing the state down, as damaging national security, and as harming social stability. 
So it gives us an understanding of it. But what, what does that look like in our lives? What, what, what are the Caesars, if you like, uh, in our modern day, in our Western world? Um, there's a book called Holy Subversion, and it suggests six areas uh, where this might apply. Um, there's self. Um, we put self at the center. There's success, the Western definition of success that everyone strives for. There's money. Uh, there's leisure, there's sex, there's power. These are things that exercise lordship over our lives. Now, these are all good things. These are all things, when we have a proper biblical worldview of them, um, are gifts from God. Okay, that's, that is the way that they are, and they're to be affirmed as that. However, okay, and that works when Jesus is over these things, um, and he's the Lord over these things. But what happens in society is we remove that. And these things themselves, which are good things, become godlike things. And uh, we, we put them above the giver of the gift. They become more important in all of those kind of areas. And then they become oppressive rulers that destroy our lives. And therefore, we're to live subversively, uh, like the early Christians, placing God on the throne where he belongs in all, all areas of life. And so when we proclaim Jesus is Lord over all of life and we live accordingly, then we start to turn the world upside down because we're living counterculturally um, in the culture of our day. And that exposes the culture of our day. I mean, we think of things like, you know, some of the classic cultural things like tolerance is one of these great values that everyone holds up high in our world apparently, um, although it doesn't work every, you know, in the whole sorts of ways. But actually tolerance is a poor parody of the Christian understanding of love. People don't want really to be tolerated. People want to be loved and accepted. And therefore, that is, that's a way that we're to live um, as, we, as we relate to people, to love people, to accept people in all of that. And we start to subvert the, the cultural uh, ideals, if you like. So let's take some of these things that look at different ones of them. You know, th to subvert the Caesar of success, you know, when somebody goes from riches to rags on behalf of the world's poor, that subverts the world's idea of success. You know, when we find happiness and contentment in people rather than in things, that starts to subvert this uh, idea of success. I came across this second century letter. It wasn't lying around, but um, somebody's reported on it. By a guy called Diognetus. I think that's how you pronounce it, but he can, uh, he'll talk to me one day, I'm sure. And he sums up very early Christian understanding of success and faithfulness. He wrote this, Christians do not find happiness by ruling over their neighbors or by seeking supremacy over the weak or being rich or by attacking the inferior. On the contrary, Christians see success in taking upon themselves the burdens of their neighbors, using their position of superiority to benefit the deficient and in distributing whatever they receive from God to the needy. This is what it means to be an imitator of God. And so the Christians would challenge by their lifestyle, their culture. Again, look at power and how Jesus subverted the Caesar of power. You know, at the Christmas story, we read of Caesar Augustus having this great census. And there he is, and he's, you know, no doubt he's a luxurious palace back in Rome or whatever, demanding this census of the known world and so that he's got the numbers that he can boast about at the end of how fantastic and how great this empire is and make sure everybody's paid their taxes as well and uh, gets all the, the money in from that. While well, Jesus is in a stable 
and he comes to serve. And he doesn't even come to show his own glory, he comes to show his Father's glory. And uh, what happens? You know, what, what, what do we celebrate every year? We don't celebrate the triumphant success of Augustus' census. We celebrate Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. You know, one in a, with a great census and a great empire, one in a stable, which one is more powerful? So Jesus' whole life challenges uh, our view of power. Um, subverting the seizure of money and mammon and prosperity. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, uh, the challenge comes, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Satan uh, always sort of brings a whole of life and makes it very material. He reduces it to the material. Satisfy your material needs. And the temptation of that, of course, is, is for us is to, to live very comfortable, very easy, very Western lives. Um, in the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis examines this temptation from Satan's perspective. And uh, uh, the devil in it is um, Uncle Wormwood, and he's schooling his, his nephew, Screwtape, in the ways to neutralize the faith of a, of a new follower of Jesus. And listen to these very challenging lines. Wormwood says, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in the world, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circles of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure, uh, sorry, the, 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 the growing pressure of absorbing agreeable work build in him a sense of being at home on earth, which is just what we want. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in the world, while really it is finding his place, its place in him. And so Jesus replies, man doesn't live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, just uh, subduing that Caesar of, uh, of money and um, uh, comfort and all of that. Sex in our culture is out of control. Uh, here's a gift of God. Here is a beautiful gift. Here's a powerful gift. Um, and it's, uh, somebody's likened it to being in a river. And it's, it's, it's there within the banks. And it's a, a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. But once it overbursts those banks then it becomes dangerous. It's no longer, longer running within the boundaries it was designed for. And uh, it becomes a flood disaster area that causes pain, that causes heartache, causes destruction. It's fueled by a multi-billion uh, pound uh, porn industry and the sexualization of music and video and uh, advertising and culture and all the rest of it. Again, a whole area that, that as we live differently, we, we subvert that in our culture. The self-life. Again, it's, it's all about putting Jesus at the center. It's about putting uh, us together as community at the center rather than just me, myself, and I. Uh, even leisure, you know, seeing leisure not just as a place for entertainment, but as a place for involvement, a time when we spend time with other people. Again, it's about people, it's not about things. And when we see people, or when people see us um, and, and people that follow Jesus living under the Lordship of Jesus, there will be times when you get that opposition. You'll get that difficult question. You'll get people who are challenged by that, who are uncomfortable with how you are living your life and how you're expressing it uh, in your life. But there will also be people who start to ask us for the reason, for the hope that we have. Because they see it in us, or we've seen in others, and I think probably that's how I became a Christian, was I saw in someone else, someone who lived differently, and I wanted to know why, and I wanted to know what that was about. So Jesus was accused 
of subverting the nation. But it wasn't the nation he was subverting. It was the spiritual forces of darkness at work in the world, across the nations, and in the culture that he was rightly subverting and actually has overcome and will overcome ultimately too. You know, the things that the thief uses to steal, to kill, and to destroy, whereas Jesus has come to give life and life in all its fullness. So the religious leaders, the ruling powers, feel threatened by that. They don't believe in that, and their sin has blinded them to even seeing it, their sin and unbelief. And that's the real issue that is behind uh, all of this. And so it's not easy to live the Christian life, but it is our call. You know, we've sung about it in song, some great songs, you know, more than conquerors, you know, the, 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 the fire in our veins, um, you know, he that is within us is greater than he that is in the world. Some great lines in the lyrics this morning. That's our call to live. It's not easy to subvert our culture in the different situations that we find ourselves, but it's the challenge. And we do it first by simply aligning our lives under God's, bringing our, every part of our lives under him and just humbly relying uh, upon, upon him in that. Bringing it under God's grace, bringing it under God's love, bringing it under God's rule. And uh, uh, we start to find, and I, you know, I find this a huge challenge. I find it a continual challenge. You think you've kind of worked it through and then you're kind of working on it again. And it's impossible in our own strength. But God has sent us his spirit. You know, he has given us one who will empower us to live that. You know, the fruit of the spirit of God is subversive. You know, if we, if we live lives of love and of joy and of peace and of patience and of kindness and of goodness and of faithfulness and of gentleness and of self-control, you know, empowered by God in that, then there is no law against those things. We start to change the world and the culture uh, around us. But we can be like Pilate. We can waver and we can compromise with the crowds. We can listen to the world's shouts. We can listen to their demands. We can listen to their will rather than live in the way we're called to. You know, will we make those tough decisions about our own lives? You know, will we make those wholehearted choices to follow God in all of these ways? You know, will we look to honor Jesus for the right reasons because he is Lord? And uh, will we publicly affirm that both outwardly but also inwardly because we mean it as well, affirming our loyalty to him. Let's pray together. Maybe the bands could come up. There's this line in Psalm 139 that just encourages us to search our hearts or for God to search our hearts. So Lord, we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Lord, test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you and pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead us forward, continue to show us how to live for you uh, with our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our places of work, uh, because we put you first. In Jesus' name. Amen.